Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Shalom from Jerusalem. I'm in Israel this week with a delegation of university presidents who are traveling here on AJC's Project Interchange, learning about Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and exploring ways to collaborate with Israel's universities. But don't worry. We made sure that you'll still get a fresh AJC passport for your jog or your morning commute. Last week, we listened to the great debate between member of Knesset Stav Shafir and Mayor Oded Ravivi. In the next two segments, you'll hear interviews recorded during the AJC Global Forum. First up, here's friend of AJC Passport and one of the foremost experts on U.S.-Israel relations, Ambassador Dan Shapiro. The U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2017, Ambassador Shapiro is currently a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. Ambassador Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. When we last spoke, you were glad that the U.S. Embassy was being moved to Jerusalem. You had several constructive suggestions, but you emphasized that embassies belong in capitals. Jerusalem, certainly the western part of, of Jerusalem, is people dispute it, but it shouldn't be disputed that it's Israel's capital. Um, so that's where the embassy should be. Uh, can we check back in on that? How do you feel now that the embassy moved? Uh, anyway, I'm happy the embassy is in Jerusalem. Uh, as I uh, felt before, uh, the embassy belongs in Jerusalem. It was where I always conducted my affairs of state with the Israeli government. And uh, as you said, West Jerusalem is not in dispute. It will never uh, not be Israel's capital, even in the, any uh, imaginable two-state solution. So uh, this is a, a useful and important change. And what I hope is that it will be used uh, to drive toward our strategic objective. Of course, the strategic objective isn't where the embassy sits. It's ending the conflict, and that means a two-state solution. And that means, uh, in a realistic understanding of two states, that the Palestinians could also achieve a capital in at least a portion of East Jerusalem. So having established uh, the one principle, I think we should expand the conversation. Uh, if the current administration uh, doesn't care to do it, uh, some of us on the outside may do it. I expect a future administration will be able to, to round that out. And it's interesting, uh, in all of my discussions on this subject over the last several months, I've consistently made that point, that we should move our embassy to Jerusalem, and we should talk about the eventual Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem. That used to be a third rail uh, statement uh, in American politics and certainly in Israeli politics, and I found almost no pushback during this period. I think there's a certain kind of understanding of that reality, which uh, can actually be constructive toward getting toward a strategic outcome that we want to achieve. Can we stay on the embassy move for just a moment? Um, there were two, there were at least two controversies surrounding the proceedings. There were these uh, two uh, pastors who spoke, uh, who had previously said theologically disparaging things about Jews and Muslims, and uh, there were also no elected Democrats there. Is that a problem? It's probably not the ceremony that you would have planned. Well, look, when administrations plan overseas events, uh, they, if they wish, uh, and this has been the practice in the past, uh, go to the congressional leadership of uh, both sides and uh, work together to develop a bipartisan delegation that then will travel together with the administration delegation and uh, represent the Congress overseas. Uh, that's what the Obama administration did, for example, for Shimon Peres' funeral, uh, which had a bipartisan delegation to it. 
Uh, this administration didn't choose to do that. Now, they say they didn't invite anybody, and I suppose that's probably the case. Uh, some members of Congress... They're saying they didn't invite Republicans or Democrats. That's what they say, and maybe the Republican members all made their own plans. I suspect there was at least some coordination. Uh, we certainly know that they invited the Republican governor of Florida, who's running against a Democratic senator. That uh, suggests maybe it wasn't a purely uh, bipartisan approach. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's a, it was a missed opportunity to help create the atmosphere that I think we should all want, that uh, this was an important move that had bipartisan support in the Congress that should have been grounded in the historic and, we hope, future bipartisan consensus about Israel. And uh, they could have done that, and that wasn't what they chose to do. And then there were some elements of the ceremony itself that you alluded to, which were troubling. Obviously, there were some people who spoke uh, who have made some very, very uh, prejudicial comments about uh, Muslims, Mexicans, gays, uh, non-Christians, uh, and uh, that doesn't represent, I think, the best of America. I, I think, or frankly, think it would, was was probably a bit awkward for some Israelis to sit uh, and and have those be the featured speakers at the at the uh, at the ceremony. So uh, yes, I probably would have planned a somewhat different <laughs> ceremony. I recognize that the current administration makes those decisions. So, uh, but I, I I think it could have been done better. And then, of course, the major controversy of that day was that infamous split screen, right? We have Americans and Israelis celebrating in Jerusalem and Palestinians dying in Gaza. Are you sympathetic to the argument that Israel could have done more to prevent casualties in that situation? So first of all, just one more thing on the ceremony that day. I think it was a mistake to do it that day. May 14th is the anniversary of Israel's founding and U.S. recognition of Israel on the secular calendar, but it's not when Israelis celebrate uh, their Independence Day. Yom Atzmut was in April on the Hebrew calendar, and it would have been possible to have that uh, ceremony two weeks earlier or two weeks later and at least remove it from that most sensitive day on the Palestinian calendar, what they call Nakba Day and the beginning of Ramadan. I don't think that was the main reason those com- those uh, protests were happening in Gaza. They'd been happening for weeks before, but I think it could have at least prevented the ceremony from contributing to the escalatory aspect of that uh, of that scene and, and having that split screen. Now, in terms of the protests themselves, uh, these were not peaceful protests. There were unarmed protesters taking part in those events near the Gaza border, uh, but this was intentionally uh, set up by Hamas to have both. Uh, unarmed, uh, you could call them peaceful, but say unarmed uh, protesters present while also violent events were happening. People trying to uh, penetrate the fence, trying to lob things over the fence, these, these kites with, uh, with incendiary devices on them, and to create a very chaotic situation with obscured field of vision, burning tires, and so forth, and which Israeli troops, uh, who have every right to keep the border from being penetrated, and had it been penetrated, uh, could have led to a much more dangerous situation with many civilians and non-civilians coming through, and then had to make those very difficult decisions about how to keep that from getting out of hand. Obviously, any civilian killed in such a situation, it's a tragedy and it's regrettable. Uh, The U.S. military has faced some of these types of challenges in Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you fight a terrorist organization that embeds itself in a civilian population? And we don't always get that right. And whenever American uh, military officers sort of did the after-action reviews, they sort of came away with the conclusion that we we think we did everything we could, and yet we still have to do more because anytime civilians are killed, it's sort of an unacceptable outcome, even if the lion's share of the blame falls on that terrorist organization that has set up that 
that situation. So it's very hard to judge specific use of force cases without being there. Uh, Israel has a good history of investigating cases where uh, use of force may have been used outside of the rules of engagement and, and maybe preventable civilian casualties uh, occurred. We don't know, and I think those investigations still are going to take some time to play out. But uh, the lion's share of the blame uh, for me uh, falls uh, with Hamas, uh, which intentionally set this thing up. And uh, I don't underestimate the challenge uh, Israel faced and Israeli troops faced in trying to keep it from getting even more dangerous. That doesn't mean every, every civilian casualty in any case is a tragedy, and it doesn't mean every use of force was correct, but it's hard to make those judgments, and certainly not on a, on a, on a blanket level. One thing that's probably evident is that even as Israel successfully defended its border, uh, it, it really lost the, the PR battle there. And thinking about PR, thinking about Israel's reputation abroad, just recently there was this issue with Argentina. The Argentinian national team was supposed to play uh, in Israel as, as a part of a World Cup warm-up. You know, we're thinking about Jerusalem. That came into play here. Originally, the match was scheduled to take place in Haifa, which is a very cosmopolitan international city. I think that the Minister of Culture and Sport here, uh, Miri Regev, uh, moved it to Jerusalem. The Palestinians, you know, made a, a whole hubbub about it, and, and the match was, was canceled. Is this kind of the first domino to fall in a new success of boycotting Israel, of, of divesting from Israel, of this, this BDS movement? Well, I hope not. Uh, it probably provides a certain degree of momentum and uh, future attempts to organize boycotts will try to build on those tactics, for example. I think what it, it says to me is that if there's a suggestion that somehow the stalemate and the lack of any progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict toward a resolution or two states can be sort of ignored and uh, Israel doesn't have to worry about the challenges that presents, I think that's not right. Now, there's lots that's completely uh, illegitimate about BDS and about boycotts and about treating Israel as the only party responsible. It has its responsibility, but clearly the Palestinians bear huge responsibility as well for this ongoing conflict. But there are, I think, limits to what some parts of the international community, even those that are relatively friendly to Israel, can absorb uh, without being able to point to some progress. So, you know, the Argentina national team. Argentina is basically a friendly country to Israel, and I don't think there's any suggestion that the players on that team or the, uh, the Argentina Football Association uh, somehow seeks, Israel's, uh, seeks harm for Israel or wants to boycott Israel. But to sort of put in their face, as it were, the controversy around Jerusalem and have it led by a, a fairly controversial political figure, as opposed to uh, having them come and have the match as scheduled in Haifa, I don't know that was a very good choice. It didn't end very well for Israel, uh, maybe it providing even fuel to, to other uh, BDS efforts. Let's turn our eyes to Syria. Prime Minister Netanyahu has made the rounds recently in Moscow, Berlin, Paris, London, uh, working to convince European leaders to support Israel's position of no Iranian presence in Syria. When he was campaigning, President Trump was saying that America needs to not be in Syria at all. But since his election, he has um, occasionally chosen to engage there militarily. And when he doesn't, he seems to say, you know, oh, we can trust Russia to take care of this issue. Would you say that President Trump's approach to Syria lines up with Israel's? In many respects, yes, but there are divergences which could lead to significant disagreements uh, down the line. Uh, it lines up in the sense that, uh, of course, the United States is uh, trying to complete the campaign to defeat ISIS. 
That's very much in Israeli interest. Uh, it lines up in the sense that uh, this administration, like the Obama administration, has given uh, significant support to the legitimacy of Israeli freedom of action to strike targets in Syria, whether more in the Obama era, these were weapon shipments on the way to Hezbollah in Lebanon, or more recently, these strikes against Iranian military infrastructure inside Syria. That's a critically important role, and I think this administration has continued it. Uh, what is potentially, though, a point of divergence is, uh, as you said, su the suggestion that President Trump has made that uh, he's looking for the exits. Uh, at the moment, uh, we still have 2,000 troops uh, in eastern Syria. He has intervened a couple of times with strikes against Syrian chemical weapons use. But, you know, like President Obama, in some ways, he doesn't appear to be looking for broader U.S. military engagements in the Middle East. He has talked openly about his desire to finish the job against ISIS and then get our troops out of Syria. So far, he's hit the pause button on that, and others in the administration who have suggested we should stay seem to have the have the upper hand on the policy, but I, I don't think that's, that's over yet. And at some point, uh, we could reach a situation where his desire to be done with Syria, as it were, and Russia's successful support for Assad's stabilization leads to a situation where the United States, under this administration, says this is essentially Russia's sphere of influence, and Israel is going to have to manage its security interests dealing with the Russians without much American input. Now, Israel's managed this relationship with Russia very effectively. I have to give Prime Minister Netanyahu tremendous credit for how successful he's been in having this dialogue with Putin and enabling Israeli freedom of action and a deconfliction mechanism. Uh, it's been very successful. But there's no question that Israelis feel more comfortable having those kinds of discussions with the Russians, knowing that the Americans are present and a player and have a seat at the table. And if at some point the United States is just completely absent from the Syrian playing field, I think the Israelis would find that to be a less comfortable situation. There's been some talk recently in Washington that came up and, and was quickly scuttled about the U.S. extending recognition to Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. There isn't exactly a, a unitary state of Syria at this point for it to be returned to. Do you think it would be a good thing for America to give that recognition? I'm not sure what the benefit of having that emerge onto the international discussion uh, would be at the moment. You think there's enough controversy in this? <laughs> you look, there are advocates for it in Israel, uh, some politicians and some others who say, look, there is no state of Syria to return it to. Had we somehow in earlier negotiations returned the Golan Heights to Syria, we would have faced a much more dangerous situation during this disastrous Syrian civil war. It could have brought violence much closer to Israel. And so we're better off that it didn't happen. And so this is an opportunity to make sure it never happens in the future. And the Trump administration is so friendly that if we ask for it, they'll give it to us. And so we should push for it. There are advocates for that. I don't think the prime minister has yet adopted that position. And I think it's largely out of a sense that the status quo serves Israel's interests very well. There is no serious discussion about peace talks with Syria. There is no real Syrian government to have those peace talks. There's certainly no serious discussion about uh, Israel uh, withdrawing from the Golan Heights. You know, we're decades away, if ever, from that becoming a scenario one could contemplate. And so the high, high likelihood is that the status quo persists. Israel maintains that strategic high ground. And uh, this issue is not really on the international uh, agenda. Whereas if the United States decides to bring that forward, and then, of course, it becomes a subject debated in the UN and various other international forums, most likely most other countries will take a firm, principled position that they've always taken, that uh, Israel can't hold on to territory it, received, it captured during wartime. Most of the Syrian opposition groups that we still deal with and support might feel that they must 
to demonstrate their uh, patriotism and their, their fealty to Syrian sovereignty, uh, make that a top issue that they deal with in their dealings with the United States, when at the moment they completely disregard it. So again, I think it might uh, bring onto the international agenda an issue that uh, is, uh, serves Israel's interest and maybe United States' interest better uh, by being left to, to lie fallow in its current status quo. It could also get the Russians involved. You know, if the Russians felt, I don't know this, but if the Russians felt that a U.S. declaration of uh, recognizing Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights was so humiliating to Assad, their client, that it would require some response, whether by Assad or Iranian or Hezbollah forces or Russia itself, uh, that obviously would be a, a potentially very problematic. Well, let me just say for our listeners that Ambassador Shapiro is an absolute must-follow on Twitter at Daniel B. Shapiro. Thank you again, Ambassador, for joining us on AJC Passport. With pleasure, and congratulations to AJC on a, on a very successful global forum. Thank you. Our next guest is Nikolai Mladenov, the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. Before serving in his current role, Nikolai served as Bulgaria's Minister of Foreign Affairs and, before that, as Defense Minister. Nikolai is a familiar face among all the key players in the region. Just this week, as we produced this episode, he was meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu to discuss ways of improving the situation in Gaza for its two million residents. Nikolai, thank you so much for joining us. In the U.S., when we talk about the peace process, we usually think of a U.S.-sponsored process, talks between Israelis and Palestinians. But what's the role of the U.N. in that process? Well, right now there is uh, practically no peace process because there are no talks. Uh, we're very far from the conditions which would make uh, such talks meaningful. Uh, and um, to add an additional complication to that, the Palestinians and the Americans don't talk to each other. So that uh, means that our role as the United Nations really now is to try and uh, uh, scramble to, to, to create the conditions that would make talks in the future meaningful. Um, and what do I mean by conditions? If you go back to 2016, we published uh, a document called the Quartet Report, which outlines a set of recommendations to both uh, the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the international community of what needs to be done to create uh, the conditions on the ground for the resumption of talks. Um, our most immediate challenge today is the situation in Gaza, because uh, it is quite desperate. Um, it is very dangerous, um, and if it explodes into another conflict, um, the entire process will be derailed for a very long time. We need to avoid war in Gaza, uh, to, to put it very bluntly. Um, and um, if we're able to do that and return the Palestinian, legitimate Palestinian government back into control of Gaza, um, then we would have uh, made a substantial step towards resuming uh, talks. What we also need to do is make sure that the um, uh, international quartet that includes the Americans, the Russians, the European Union and the UN um, is focused on dealing with this challenge, the challenge of Israeli-Palestinian peace, um, uh, which currently I'm afraid it is not, for many, many reasons. Uh, the American administration uh, has said that it wants to put out a unilateral plan. Um, um, everybody else in the region is busy elsewhere, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, a lot of other conflict uh, spots. Um, so we need to sort of keep that group together. Um, and, and thirdly, we need to make sure that the, uh, uh, the Arabs uh, in the region are on board uh, for any solution, for any uh, uh, process that resumes negotiations, 
because they have a critically important role to play right now. So um, our role, in a way, to summarize it, has, has increased over the last few uh, years, uh, contrary to what uh, people may, may have thought. You mentioned that there's hardly any, perhaps no real process right now, but I think that was probably true in 2015 when you took this job. To speak plainly, why would you saddle yourself with this? What made you take the job? Because I think it's ultimately, it is critically important, not just for Israelis and Palestinians, to have an arrangement which allows them to separate and live uh, separately but together in two states with the appropriate security arrangements. That is not just for Israel and for, uh, for the Palestinians. That is critical for the rest of the Middle East. It's critical for Europe. Um, and I've seen with my own eyes, whether it's in Iraq or elsewhere in the region, how um, um, pe people don't think of this the, the Palestinian file on a daily basis because they have other issues to uh, be concerned with, very dramatic issues. But ultimately, um, it is an issue that, that, that lingers on. Um, and without addressing it, you can't open the full potential of what, uh, you know, Israel's full um, integration into the region and, and an opening up of a relationship between the Arabs and Israel will, will, will create and all the benefits for that. For Europe, that's also important. For my country, Bulgaria and the Balkans, which is, you know, less than a couple of hours flight from here, um, it is critically important that we have this peace here. And when I did take the job, yes, there wasn't a peace process in 2015, but um, at least there was a, the key international factors, the Americans, the Russians, the Europeans were talking to both sides. And now we have a situation in which one critical uh, party, uh, the U.S. administration, is not talking to the Palestinian side. Um, and that means that the likelihood of sort of unilateral measures, unilateral actions will um, will increase only to make things worse. That's why the situation now is much more precarious than, uh, than back in 2015. I think there's a great deal of frustration among... Oh, Is yes. <laughs> Not just among Israelis. That's an evergreen sentence. Fair enough. Uh, I think there's a great deal of frustration among Israel's supporters with the stance that the United Nations often takes when there's some kind of flare-up of violence. It's almost become cliche to talk about restraint on both sides. Uh, and I think that partisans uh, in favor of Israel feel that Israel does show restraint, uh, almost by its nature. Do you think there's room for the UN to change its approach to that? Well, let me try and separate that question into two parts. One part is what the member states of the United Nations do with resolutions or, or statements and the General Assembly and the Security Council. That is the part that I and the Secretariat have no control over. So we're just the, the, you know, on the receiving end of whatever it is that they, uh, uh, they do. What we try and do is, to the best of our efforts, brief them of you know, objectively of what's happening on the ground, because we're the guys here on the ground. We're the ones who talk to the Israelis, who talk to the Palestinians, who go in and out of Gaza, who talk to the Egyptians, the Jordanians, and, and, and anyone. And what our role really is to provide a fair picture of what is happening today. And, and I will just zoom in a little bit on Gaza and what's been happening over the last few weeks there. Um, we've had 100 people killed and 1,500 injured, etc., um, in the, the protests that are happening um, at defense. So, I don't think, as a human being, that when you have pictures of children being shot by snipers, that helps anyone. It doesn't help Israel, it doesn't help the Palestinians, it only angers and, and, and feeds this uh, you know, reality of violence that you have. So there's a fair point to make 
that when Israel defends its legitimate interests to keep the border safe and keep protesters who are trying to put IEDs and bombs and cross through and kidnap people, that you do what you have to to protect that. But you really need to be careful and calibrated in how you address that situation because it, it ultimately backfires against you, against your, your moral stand in this situation. But that message also needs to go out to the guys who control Gaza because they're the ones who are responsible for people going in. It's been made very clear that there's a, there's a buffer zone close to the fence that people will be shot at if they get into that uh, buffer zone. So if you're a responsible authority in Gaza, you don't push people in that direction. You don't make them go in carrying babies and children and, and all that. On the contrary, you protect them from that. So yes, they can protest and they have a legitimate right to protest, but they do it in a way that it is not violent and that they can voice their concerns, but they do it in a manner that's not violent and not, um, not aggressive. If that were the case, then uh, we would have avoided a lot of these incidents because in Gaza, what you had was you had legitimate protests of people who wanted to make their voices heard. And then you had underneath of these protests, those who were attempting to breach the fence, to put IEDs, to cross over and to create provocations and incidents. And it is that combination of security risks, which is now continuing to be one of our main concerns in Gaza, because with all of these thousands of people converging on the fence, when they have nothing back home, they have no economy, they have no food, they have no water, they've been living under Hamas's control for a decade now, uh, their own government is reluctant to come back and control Gaza. It makes a very, very explosive situation. There's this concern about the definition of refugees in this particular instance, where all other refugees in the world, it's just the people who were displaced. With the Palestinians specifically, it's all of their descendants in generations to come. And so it's a refugee problem that grows rather than resolves itself. Do you think that that is a good thing for the future resolution of the conflict? No, I don't. And I think that people need to one, acknowledge that addressing the, the issue of refugees and how people will be uh, resettled back in the future Palestinian state should and remain one of the core issues that is discussed under this context. But what I also fear is that given where we are today, the people living in the camps in Lebanon and West Bank, Gaza, less so in Jordan, but, but Syria, also live in such desperate conditions that they are breeding grounds for extremism and radicalism. And we will only make the situation worse if suddenly their schools shut down or their hospitals stop working, which is a very, very serious risk later this year. So what I'm hoping to see is that actually we find a way that services in these communities continue um, because they're necessary, but that also the political aspect of the refugee uh, challenge is addressed through negotiations and through a legitimate process, which now doesn't exist. And UNRWA was created, uh, you know, back in the day, people thought this was for a couple of years, I don't know what, you know, now it's been half a century. It's become a fabric of uh, Palestinian society. Um, and certainly a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of reforms and changes need to take place, yeah. Just one final question for you, Nikolai. Uh, what gives you hope in this arena? That's a tough one uh, because, well, actually not that tough one because if you meet, I think what gives me hope is actually meeting people who are sick and tired of foreigners and politicians blabbering on about peace and making a career out of it without actually focusing on doing something about it. 
And I think we have a responsibility to actually be the generation, if you wish, that actually does something about it. Because we've seen this effect for, for, for far too long. And maybe it's because I come from the Balkans, where we've had our own mini version of that for too many years until we finally pulled out of it. Um, that makes me so so convinced that we yes we can do it. We need uh, unorthodox approaches. We need to focus on the, the issues that I talked in the beginning on the conditions in which people live on the ground, on addressing the reality, not the statements. Um, we need to make sure we prevent war because getting into the cycle of every couple of years there's another war. Um, uh, is, is disruptive for, for, for everyone's life. Um, and ultimately, we need to, I think, convince both Israelis that every round of negotiation doesn't mean another round of violence, um, and Palestinians that every round of negotiation doesn't mean another round of them losing you know, their national narrative or their land. Um, and in that sense, you know, it, it's a tough one, but it is ultimately doable because we all know that the only way out of this conflict is if you know Jews and Palestinians separate in two states which live side by side in whatever the security, whatever the trade, whatever the economic arrangement is, but they need to be masters of their own fate because otherwise uh, you have a constant recipe for, uh, for disaster if you, you, know, you try and um, not separate them. And I don't believe that our role as the international community is to sort of write the uh, the treaty and put it on the table and say, just sign here. Our role is to facilitate both sides to get to that point, because they're ultimately the people who live here. Nikolai, thank you so much thank for joining us on AJC Passport and sharing your expertise. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm here in Israel with the presidents of 10 universities from across the U.S. They represent prestigious private schools like Cornell, Tufts, and Tulane, as well as major public universities like the University of Vermont and the University of Minnesota. Just yesterday, I accompanied them to the Palestinian city of Ramallah, to hear from a vice chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization, as well as the top pollster in the West Bank. Then, on our return to Jerusalem, we met with a high-ranking official in Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, followed by some time to explore Jerusalem, and then dinner with a member of Knesset. As the legislator spoke, the sounds of a live concert drifted into the restaurant, and we realized that Netta, who won the Eurovision Song Competition with her song, Toy, was performing the winning number just steps away. In the morning, we heard the perspective of Israel's adversaries. In the afternoon, we listened as Israel explained its own position. In the early evening, we stepped out into the bustling center of Jerusalem, and at night, as we learned about Israeli society, we heard the fruits of the Jewish state's cultural creativity. I'm proud that we at AJC are able to help leaders from all over the world experience Israel so fully. I know that this kind of deep exposure and engagement with the Jewish state is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. 
The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.